We come to Isaiah 6 today in an awesome chapter that talks about Isaiah's experience of God's holiness. Look there with me, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. It says that in, this happened in the year that King Uzziah died. In other words, what he's, what he's going to tell us happened the year that King Uzziah died. Now don't let that phrase just kind of pass you like history dates did when you were in school. This is a very important introductory setting. For King Uzziah became king when he was 16 and he reigned for 52 years. And if you read Second Chronicles 26, you'll find that he was a very good king. The Lord prospered him until the very end when he began to trust in himself and, and be proud. And he was so proud that toward the end of his kingship, he went to the temple and he began to burn incense. Well, when news like that got back to the priests, 80 priests followed him into the temple and said, Uzziah, what you're doing is dangerous. You're treading on holy ground. This is not the place for you. This isn't your role. Well, in his pride, he fought back the priests and he hot-headedly kind of uh, let his temper get out of control. And in view of that, God struck him with leprosy on the spot. He began to whiten right in front of their faces. Well, the priest took him from that location. They ushered him out. And for the rest of his reign, he lived outside of the worshiping community. And he died a leprous king. Now watch this. That was known throughout the nation. That a king who would raise his head up in pride to a holy God did not last. So do you see why that's important? to what Isaiah is about to relate to us. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, and then here's a little uh, parenthetical phrase you won't find in there. Yeah, the king that thought he was hot stuff and God took out. Are you with me? In that year, what did Isaiah say he saw? I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted. You see, Uzziah probably thought he was that. God made sure Uzziah knew, no, Uzziah... You're not high and exalted and reigning. It's the Lord. And Isaiah relays now to the people. He saw the Lord. And notice, if you would, the word Lord there. It is capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. You see that? It's the Hebrew word Adonai. And it is the reference for Jesus. What Isaiah saw was the second person of the Trinity. He saw Jesus Christ seated on a throne, high and exalted. Now, notice what Jesus is doing. He's seated. (laughs) He's not pacing. He's not wringing his hands or twiddling his thumbs. He's not sweating it. He's not cornered. He's not threatened. What is he? He's seated, which indicates he's sovereignly in control. He's not stressed or worried. He's, and I use this word correctly here, he's comfortably... Sovereign. Isn't that interesting? Jesus Christ is seated on the throne in charge and He's high and exalted. And the words high and exalted, they don't refer to the throne, they refer to the Lord, to His nature. Here is Jesus Christ, God, the second person of the Trinity, high and exalted, and He's so exalted that His train fills the temple. In other words, this robe which speaks of majesty and 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 an exaltedness, the train that came from his robe was so massive that it just filled the temple. I got thinking about that. What if 
when Julie and I were married 19 years ago, and I'm at the front of the church, she enters and she walks down and she stands right there and I'm just waiting for the chance to make her mind, you know. Suddenly, what if, as she's walking in, this train just keeps flowing and flowing and all these attendants are taking it and they're piling it up and it's going through every aisle and then over the lights and suddenly the whole church is just nothing but a train with Julie's face right in the middle. And that would be an odd wedding, no doubt. And I would probably think, wow, you're just everywhere. Guess what? This speaks of God's pervasiveness. And let me say it to an vernacular that maybe you'll understand even more clearly. When God is around, there's just no place for anybody else. He takes up all the space. Are you with me? That's what Isaiah saw. And then above him were seraphs. And the word seraph means burning one. So they were probably red, fiery, angelic beings created to... to to worship God. These seraphs, we don't know how many there were, but they had six wings. Now watch what they were doing. These, With two wings, they covered their faces, and two, they covered their feet. I think it indicates there that they were just incredibly humbled to be in the presence of God. So watch this. From head to toe, they just covered themselves up. In other words, we don't deserve to be here. We can't look upon you. We can't stand in your presence. It's symbolic of the position and the posture we ought to take when we're in the Lord's presence. It's the posture Uzziah didn't take. Are you with me? And then with two wings, they were flying about. And I think that speaks to their readiness. You notice they weren't sitting. Amen? They were at the Lord's bidding. Ready, on call, and when you speak, we'll move. Here's what they were saying. And by the way, they were saying this to one another. They weren't saying this to God. God doesn't need you to to verify or make Him feel better about Himself. Are you with me? They were saying to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. They were affirming what was fundamentally true. And by the way, the, the three times that holy is mentioned is actually, and linguistically, it's called a super superlative, which is actually grammatically impossible to have something that is like saying, you're the best of the best. Well, if you're the best, you're the best. But it's kind of a, a way of saying, you know, he's not just holy, and he's not just holy, holy. Guess what he is? He's holy, holy, holy. And in, in the Bible, primarily the New Testament, many of the writers used a double repetition to make uh, emphatic points. Remember Christ often said, Verily, verily, I say unto you. The word there is truly. He would say, truly, truly. And sometimes we even see God using names twice. He would say, Peter, Peter. Isaiah goes beyond even the double usage. And he says, holy, holy. And in case you're not getting it, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. I would underline the phrase in the end of verse 3, the whole earth is full of His glory. And I would connect that back to the phrase, the train of His robe filled the temple. Because in both phrases, you have the the sense that God's glory is everywhere. Now, Now listen very carefully, church. You can choose to ignore that. You may take action to deny that, but it doesn't change the reality that God is all-consuming and pervasive. His glory does fill the earth whether we recognize it or not. 
What does Psalm say? The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. I'm amazed sometimes that we let a talking head on Fox Network or, a, or some political or, or environmental expert on CNN actually decide if God exists or not or if the things are, are uh, you know, in the earth and the environment are controlled by God. My goodness, you know what? Whether we recognize it or not, God's glory is there. It is a fact and it fills the earth. As they were talking about that, they must have talked about that at a very high volume level. Now, we're not told explicitly in the text that's the case. But we are given an indication that it might have happened. Look at verse 4. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds, thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Wow! Now, that's some high volume concert action, isn't it? I mean, they were saying, holy, 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 to some extent that either the magnitude of the volume or perhaps the magnitude of the importance, who knows? But to some degree, what they said to one another caused the place to shake. And when God is present, perhaps physically and symbolically, God shakes things up, doesn't He? I, I see some things in, this, in these opening verses about worship. I just want to share with you briefly, worship is upward. I hope that simplifies things for you. Let me say that again to you. Ready? Worship is upward. It is God-focused. It is vertical at, at its core. Worship is not because of these people on the platform. It's not because of what instrument they play or don't play. It's not because of what hand you do raise or don't raise. It's not because of anything that is horizontal. Worship is a vertical gaze. It's strictly God-focused. And much of the reason, listen very carefully, church, that we're, and when I say we're, I don't mean us per se, but Christendom and the average nominal Christian is frustrated with the quote-unquote Worship scene is because they have a horizontal view. That was too loud. It was too soft. I didn't like that style. That's not my taste. That's too old. That's too new. Rang, rang, rang. That's a pretty horizontal perspective, isn't it? And see, maybe we don't really understand what worship is. Worship is an upward understanding of the nature of God. Period. And responding to that. That's one thing I love about First Family. Is, you know, I've got to be honest with you. We just don't get a lot of grief about the horizontal aspect of worship. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You know why? Because it, it's, it's evident and obvious that, that this is a body of believers consumed with the vertical understanding of who God is. And worship happens collectively at 8.30 and 10.30. Yes. And is everything just like you like it or I like it? Of course it's not. We're human. But that doesn't affect what we're really trying to do is to see God as He is. And so we leave Sundays, we enter Mondays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays, and we still see God. So the horizontal does not bring us down. But we stay vertical because worship is upward. I'm reminded of an interesting old verse in the, in the historical books of the Old Testament where... It speaks of, I think it's either Jacob. I think it is Jacob. And he's in the end of his life. And he leans forward. This is Marty shared this with me recently. He says, Jacob leaned forward on his staff 
and worshipped. He's old. He couldn't raise his hand, do a spiritual jig. But he could know God as God really was. You with me? You see, worship is upward. And Isaiah saw this in his first few verses. It was strictly about God. Well, that brought him in verse 5 to an incredible response. Look what he says. Woe to me. And it's important that you understand that he's not saying woe is me. He's saying woe to me. The word woe is another word for judgment. In fact, if you read Isaiah, you'll find that often Isaiah would pronounce woes upon Old Testament people. He would pronounce woes upon the nation. He's saying, here, God, put a a judgment on me. I've seen you as you really are, and I am nothing. In fact, he says, I am ruined. And and another good word that would clarify the word ruined, it's kind of a a two-toned word here, it's the word speechless. In other words, I'm left without nothing, whether it's actions or or merit or, or words. I'm left with nothing. I'm speechless. Here's why that makes sense, because it says now, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, what did he just say there? Listen very carefully, church. He just talked about how in his, this is his commissioning chapter. Here God is going to call Isaiah to speak. But when Isaiah saw God, he realized, man, I can't speak. I'm nothing but undone. I'm speechless. So what do I do, God? I've seen you. And by the way, that word in verse 5 when it says, I've seen the Lord Almighty, it's Yahweh. Do you see that all capital letters in verse 5? When Isaiah says, I saw Adonai... In verse 1, which is Jesus. And then he says, I saw the Lord, Yahweh Almighty. Guess what he's doing? He's affirming the deity of Christ. He's saying, hundreds of years before Christ was born, Jesus Christ is God. And let it be known loud and clear, in the day when the culture wants to attack the, the truth and deity of our Savior, first family stands clearly on this fact. Jesus Christ is God. 100%. He's not just another good man. He's not the brother of the devil. He is God. And Isaiah points it out clearly. I saw the Lord, and that was Yahweh. Now, by the way, John spells this out for us in his book in the New Testament. John says in John 12, 40 and 41, you might want to jot that down. John 12, 40 and 41 teach us that it was actually Isaiah seeing Jesus. He says it very clearly. And then watch this. The point of the whole Gospel of John is that Jesus is God. So as you read the whole Council of Scripture, you see Jesus Christ is God. He is God wrapped in flesh 100%. And it's this second person of the Trinity, this this, uh, God's Son, this God-man, that did what verse 6 talks about. Watch this. Isaiah saw Him knew how unclean he was, and instead of God writing Isaiah off, it says that one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. That's important to note, because the word altar signifies sacrifice. Could God have said, okay, Isaiah, you know, zappo wappo, your lips are fine. Could God have done something else? He could have because He's God, but He chose to take something from an altar where there must have been a sacrifice. And He chose that to purify. And what does the rest of the verse say? This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin, what? Atoned for. Guess what? There's no atonement without a sacrifice. What a wonderfully symbolic prophecy of the death of Jesus Christ. 
And there is no forgiveness for our sins. There is no atonement for our guilt apart from a sacrifice. This morning, I don't know what brought you to First Family. I couldn't begin to guess why everyone's here. It could have been a crisis. It could be a habit. Maybe it's your last choice. <laughs> Who knows why you're here? I'm sure a lot of us are really committed. Maybe you're here because you're like, you know what? It's 2008. I've got to get back in church. And you're not really sure how to be rightly related to God. To how to deal with this thing called sin that's been kind of staring at you lately. Can I say to you that the only way to deal with sin is through Jesus Christ and His atoning death on the cross. That's the only way. Now, I'm glad you're attending First Family. I'm glad you're going to church. But that's probably just an outward way uh, of trying to say, Hey, what's up? What can I do? The, The key is to believe in Jesus Christ as the only way to let His forgiveness wash our sins away. That's the key action to take. I just invite anyone here who maybe had questions, who's curious. You know, hey Todd, how do I deal with this sin issue? Man, even back as far as these Old Testament years, it was clear that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Well, I think of two more words as I read these verses 5 through 7. That's the word inward change. I see upward worship resulting in inward change. And by the way, I love the way the change is inward. You know where the change is not? The change is not out there. Isaiah didn't come to God and say, Wow, God, you are awesome and holy, and I hope you get everybody else in line. Isaiah didn't see the Lord and nudge his wife. Are you with me? Isaiah saw the Lord and said, Man, God, I need help. That's probably the one sure sign that we see God is we're not worried about the window. We're looking in the mirror. Are you with me? Well, Isaiah experiences an incredible change because of his correct view of God. And then notice what happens in verse 8. We see outward mission developing. Verse 8, the first word is then. You ought to just circle that word. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? His natural response is now that he has had his lips purged, now that he's able to speak because of the Lord's atoning work, he says what? Here am I, send me. And I think perhaps, we don't know this from the text, but perhaps Isaiah was very excited about the possibility of preaching and prophesying and how that would result in the return of Israel, but that's not what God had in mind. God had a very arduous road for Isaiah. He explains it in verses 9 through the end of the chapter. Let me read some of this to you. Don't lose me, okay? Follow with me. He said, yes, Isaiah, go and tell this people. Here's what I want you to tell them. Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, their eyes dull, their ears dull, close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. He's like, wait, 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 wait. I've got to preach a message. I've got to give prophecies that, to which they're going to reject. The Lord says, yes, you're going to be kind of like a lone voice. But don't quit. So Isaiah suddenly thinks, man, I, I'm, I'm going to go because God, you have changed me. I, I have no other option. But how long have I got to preach this message no one's going to listen to? And he says, until the cities lie ruined, in verse 11. Until they're without inhabitants, until they're left deserted, and the fields ruined and ravaged. The Lord sent everyone far away, the land's forsaken. Until 
And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. As the terebinth and oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, the holy seed will be at the stump in the land. Here's what he's saying, guys. Listen very carefully. He's saying, Isaiah, I want you to preach a message they're never going to listen to. They're going to turn a deaf ear. They're going to act like they hear you. They're going to act like they see it, but they're not going to understand. And you keep preaching that until there's just very few left. And at some appointed time when there are very few left, I will be the hope of Israel. Now, listen very carefully. I believe this prophecy is ultimately fulfilled when Christ sets up His 1,000 year millennial reign. Here's why I believe that. I believe this prophecy is fulfilled in the life of Christ. Because it's quoted in John chapter 12. I think it sees partial fulfillment in about 500 and 586 in that area when they went to Babylonian captivity. In other words, over a period of hundreds of years, God began to reduce Israel to a nothing nation. He humbled them because of their rejection of Him. In fact, there are about 400 years between the Old and New Testaments. We call the silent years when God didn't even speak. There was no prophet on the scene. In other words, what he talks about being ravaged and uninhabited and deserted, that was happening. And God was bringing Israel to her knees until to a very small group of folks which contained a little girl named Mary. God spoke a prophecy. And He said, Mary, I want you to bear a son. I want you to call His name Jesus. And suddenly, in the midst of darkness, God speaks. When Israel is ravaged and uninhabited, when everything seems hopeless, just as Isaiah prophesied, suddenly there is this small stump, this remnant, and God heard their cries and began to, to move. And Christ is born as Isaiah predicts. And then He's rejected again by His people. In fact, in John 12, this is rehearsed again where He says, you know what, you're looking at Me, you're hearing Me, but you're not believing. And so at some point in that whole three-year ministry, He says to His people, how I would have gathered you like chickens under, under my wings, but you did not listen. He came into His own, His own receiving not. Remember that, John 1.12? So somehow in that theological situation, God now opens the gates and then Gentiles can be saved. And to that, you should all say, Amen. I can't quite get how all that works in the historical plan of God, but I know that historically, as the nation of Israel rejected Jesus... He is now looking towards a day when every eye will see Him. And when He comes back again and destroys the nations who will be encamped against Israel, their city will again be ravaged, left desolate. They'll be at the very end of their national life. And at the last minute, on a white horse, our Savior comes from heaven. And He destroys the enemies of Israel. And He sets up a thousand year reign where He will be in Jerusalem reigning visibly and he will set the record straight and we'll talk more about that next week but I want you to see that's what Isaiah's mission was you've got to preach to a people who will never listen to you oh there'll be small remnants here and there there'll be pockets but for the most part Isaiah you'll be a lone voice you'll be an unheard prophet but don't give up you keep preaching and what would cause Isaiah to never give up is what happened in verses 1 through 4 he saw God as he really was amen that's what keeps our feet on the rock when people don't listen to us. When you feel like they're giving you a death here, when you're thinking, man, when's it ever going to change? When's something going to turn around? Listen, you stay faithful. Keep at it. That's the kind of God you serve. Let Him take care of that. You just honor Him and be faithful. Amen.
And Isaiah was able to see God, upward worship, experience inward change, and it really affected his outward mission. Now let me give it to you in a sentence. Because this text lays out for us a very important principle that I think all of us need to understand. Upward worship always leads to inward change and an outward mission. And if you're without the latter two, listen very carefully, First Family, if you're without the latter two, if there is no change, if there really is no mission, guess what? Don't try to externally go to the secondary problem and philanthropically try to like make yourself a good person, turn over a new leaf or be kind. Why don't you address the root issue? Start seeing God as He is. Worship the Almighty. He will change you best. And He'll send you out best. And much of the reason our churches are way too manufactured and manipulated humanly is because we have gone after change and mission without worship. But let a church worship God simply, clearly, and without apology. Change and mission will happen. It's in the nature of God. It's His character to do that. Let me give it to you another way. Passion always results in compassion. And as we see God more clearly, we'll see others more compassionately. I'm reminded of what Pastor George W. Truett said in one of his sermons. He was a pastor of a church in Dallas. He wrote this to his church about the, the supreme indictment against the church. And you can read it there behind me. The supreme indictment being this. That a church lacks in passion and compassion for human souls. It's nothing better than an ethical club if its sympathies for lost souls do not overflow and if it does not go out to seek to point lost souls to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In other words, if we just gather together and think we can humanly manufacture some type of change effort or pretend that, well, do these three things and you'll be different or better, man, listen, those are all just manipulated efforts. What we've got to become and, and continue to strive to be as a church, worshiping God so that His redemptive nature and holy nature flows from us. And it comes out as a, as a church full of compassion. That happens best when it's a church full of passion for Him. In fact, let me show you this in two other verses that I think really support this whole idea, this whole process of God, upward, inward, and outward. Look at Psalm 40 real quickly, would you? Psalm 40. In these verses, David lays out for us the very same process. I'll just kind of mention these briefly, but look what he says, Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on the rock and He gave me a firm place to stand. Do you see that? Look at all that God has done for me. God has changed me. And look what the next verse says. He put a new song in my mouth. Wow, God really has. He has changed you. A hymn of praise to our God many will see in fear. Do you see the same progression? Upward, inward, then outward. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And just jot these verses down, in fact, as I read them to you. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. The same process he says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. Do you see that? We try to persuade men. Wow, Paul said, because we know God, we now try to persuade men. There it is. Upward, inward, 
and outward. In fact, look at the last part of chapter 5 in 2 Corinthians. I'll just kind of give these verses as we wrap things up. He says in verse 18, All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, which is this, that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Hallelujah. Amen. And He's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore... Do you see that? The word therefore. In other words, because He didn't count our sins against us, because He has redeemed us, guess what? We are His ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you then on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And don't you feel the passion from David or, or the Apostle Paul or Isaiah as they focus on God's incredibly redemptive work, His atoning sacrifice, and how that motivates them to then turn away from the mountain, so to speak, to the masses and implore people on behalf of God, be reconciled. See, sometimes when we're at the mountain and we're in awe and fear, we sometimes just kind of find a rock nearby and say, man, I I just can't do anything. I'm just almost scared. And we run and hide in a rock. That's not what God wants. That is a mountain that leads us in awe and fear, but Isaiah 6 shows us what God wants is this. We're at the mountain, and we're in awe, and then as we see God's heart for people, we turn. And we're like, wow, folks, this God that we can hardly grasp, He loves us. And we're outreach-focused. It's upward, inward, and outward. And it's always in that order. That's what the holiness of God does for us. It leaves us concerned and compassionate for other people. Now, let me make this uncomfortably practical for you. Okay? If that's true, and it is, then that means as we turn and face the masses, as we are the first family posture, right? You can all do this. And if you're new, the last few months you might not have seen this lately, but this has kind of become the first family posture since we started was we're an open-armed, we're an outreach-focused church. Now, we exclusively believe that Christ is the only way. But we love people. We feel like we're God's ambassadors. So we have this posture. Now watch this. I've noticed that as we really focus on God and see Him as He is, this is the way we are. But sometimes when we get our eyes off God and His incredible work in our own life, we become more like this. So how do you see that, Todd? I'm going to give you an example. A, a simple illustration of how we all do this. I do it and you do it. This shows up first probably in how we treat people we don't know. You see, when we were running about 80 or 120, if you were all gathered over at Nevin when we first met and you saw someone there that you didn't know, you knew you didn't know them, and so you rallied and you said, Hey, I can tell you're new and you must be looking for a church or maybe they're not even a believer. And so you just you could kind of befriend them because you knew they were new. Because you knew everybody else. It was simple. But now, when we're 500 plus, we walk in and we want to be this, but our human nature says, Wow, I think everybody here is new. And the humanness in us says, well, I wouldn't dare dive into a crowd of folks I don't know. And what was this two years ago becomes, well, you know what, I've got to go to the restroom. <laughs> or I'm going to get a donut. And, and suddenly we, and it's not on purpose, but we move from an other-centered, sacrificial lifestyle 
to a self-centered lifestyle. Now, I don't think you would say, you know, that you're self-centered on purpose. I realize these are probably accidental things that happen. But I do it, you know that? So I'll see a number of new folks. I'm like, wow, I wonder if I can greet all those folks. I've got to remember their names. And I'll think, man, I, I better go pray somewhere. <laughs> something like that. And we, the humanness in us makes us run away. But can I tell you something? What will keep this church where it started in the right, with the right attitudes this church had to start with is when, when you see a crowd like that or three or four folks you don't know or you look down the road you're like, man, I don't know anybody on this row. Our church is really growing. Instead of saying, well, that's good, but I'm not in the mix of it. Man, be other-centered and take a risk and if you look stupid, deal with it. Who cares if you say, hey, are you new? No, I've been coming for a year. Well, great. Now I know that. I mean, just get over yourself. Enough to say, hey, I think I'd like to get to know you better. And Are you in a lighthouse? Are you not? How long have you coming here? When that starts happening again, you know what? We'll begin to live more like God did with us. You say, what do you mean, Todd? I remind you that it was to a world of strange and sinful people that God sent His only Son. He wasn't invited, but He dove into a crowd. He lived among us. Aren't you glad he did? See, there's something about a real correct view of God and how he changes us that suddenly will make us even go beyond our comfort levels and say, Hey, I, I noticed you the last couple of weeks sitting on the same road, but I don't know your name. My name's, you know, Joe. What's yours? We've got to get over ourselves because that's what happens when we truly see God. We're not near as worried about us, we're a lot more concerned about others. And I would say to you, When a church stops being others-focused, it has already stopped being God-centered. And they suddenly become very self-centered. Man, I pray first thing will never become a self-centered church. Now, you've proven yourself well in this, by the way. You did it today. How many of you parked somewhere besides in this parking lot? Raise your hand. Not near enough, but way to go. That first service, there was a lot more. That's not to make you feel bad. Maybe a little bit. But <laughs> there were a lot more. And man, they were coming across the streets like huddled up, you know. We're asking folks to park other places or to carpool because we were out of space last week at 1030. Completely out of parking spaces. Well, Todd, I've been coming for two years and so what? How's that for compassion? <laughs> There's someone who might be trying to get here this week for the first time who maybe last week found out their spouse is going to leave them or their kid got diagnosed with some illness or perhaps they've just been brought to their knees and they see that they're sinful and lost and they're looking for an answer. Maybe if you just parked across at the funeral home, maybe they'd find a space and hear the gospel. Are you with me? It's just an others-centered view that says, you know what, it doesn't matter if I park across the street or if I have to sit closer. A lot of you are sitting closer. Way to go. There's more seats in the back. That's excellent. You're crowding in the middle. It's little things like that. It's, it's staying in the lobby a few more minutes. And instead of staying with your group and your donuts, it's saying, hey, pardon me, I want to go meet some new people. And saying, hey, uh, I don't know your name. Are you in a lighthouse? They'll say, a lighthouse? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, R.J. Parks has kind of got me asking about my lighthouse. We're going to ambush our neighbors too. And No, I'm kidding you about that. It's just, it's just talking to people. It's, it's being friendly. It's, it's little things that show you're not going to be consumed with, with, with you. But because God is such a holy, redemptive, changing God, uh, I want to make sure that, that you benefit as well. In fact, here's a great prayer to pray every Sunday.
when you walk in to worship with the spiritual family, at either 8.30 or 10.30, outside those doors say, God, you are incredibly awesome that you would redeem me. I didn't deserve a bit of mercy or grace, but you reached down and picked me out of a miry pit and saved my wicked soul. God, you are awesome. Now, I'm going to make sure that you get my vertical gaze. And so when I enter this door, though, there will be a lot of people here. Will you cross my path with someone who could benefit from that story? Does that make sense? So it's still upward, and it's still inward, but the result of those two are like, God, just use what you've done in my life to help someone. When you start thinking that way, then when you see a new person, when you see someone that may just look a little lonely, when you see a family trying to gather their you know, 12 kids and 14 diaper bags and sign-in sheets and bulletins and worship folders, say, hey, I can give you a hand, and they got a donut here and a cup of coffee here and a water bottle. Can I, can I help you get to class? I mean, when someone in the parking lot trying to get out of their car, maybe it's raining one week, you got a number, I'll help them out. You see what I'm saying, guys? It's all those things combined that say to someone, wow, why are you acting this way? What makes you so different? Well, I'll tell you. God is just incredibly awesome. Upward, inward, and outward. And I'm just going to be really honest with you here. I don't want you to do it in the opposite order. I have no desire to pastor a church where we manufacture and manipulate evangelism. Or we humanize the work of God. I'm very content to gather every week and celebrate an incredibly holy God. And then let Him do what He does best. Change us and reach others. Amen? So you probably won't find me giving you an elbow in the ribs saying, can you get this going? God will take care of you. He'll change you. God will change me too. And as humans, we just want to try to live out the nature of God to people around us. That's just one way we can. And I'll tell you first thing, we've got to address it and, and deal with that. And I want, us to, I want to ask you, I know it's not on purpose, but let's just make sure that we're not becoming this. Let's stay this. Amen? I hope that when you leave here in a few minutes, trust me, a few minutes is all it'll be, you'll transform that lobby. It won't be, come on, honey, grab the coat and the kids will Maybe you'll stay around a few minutes and just meet someone new. Maybe you won't leave your row until you look down and say, you know what, I don't think we've met before. And make this place a place that we're motivated to be outwardly on mission because we're inwardly changed by a holy God. In fact, to help you apply this, I've given you a little card in your worship folder. Will you look at that for a moment? In fact, you see it repeated twice, don't you? It's called My Isaiah 6. And it's simply one of the ways that we're trying to help you implement this chapter. Since God is a holy, just, and redeeming God who changes us and then sends us on mission, to whom would God send us? I'm just going to ask you to start thinking right now. And you don't have to turn in today, don't worry. I wouldn't put you in a corner and try to say something the first week. That's crazy. But I want to ask you over the next several weeks, to whom would God send you? I want to start thinking about six people that you're willing to invest in. In other words, live a life of holiness in front of them in an honest, authentic way. And then, as God begins to, to open the doors, and as they see the change of God in you, you're willing to open your mouth at the right time and invite them. Now, I don't necessarily mean to invite the church. That's a great idea. Please do. Easter's a great time, by the way. It's a time when most people go to church somewhere. So I would utilize that time frame. But I also mean just invite them to trust Jesus Christ. Man, 
when you invest in relationships and you live wholly in front of them and you live with them in mind, you open your house up, you have help their kids, you have dinner with them, you, you adjust your schedule because they matter. When that happens and God opens the door, please, at that point, don't get tight-lipped. I'm not an either-or. I think it's both. We live and then we use our lips to speak. And man, if someone finally says, you know, man, what is up with you? Why, are you? why do you love me so much? Why do you keep hanging out with me? Just say, you know, I'm just telling you, it seems to me you could use a lot of the change that God brought to my life. And share the gospel. Are you with me, guys? That's Isaiah 6. And who is God bringing to your mind right now? I suspect He's already brought two or three people that you know are broken and hopeless, just like you were. Lost without the Lord. But because you've seen God now. Because He's changed you. It's different for you. You now love people. You have compassion. You're not looking out the window with critical fingers and judgmental tones. It hurts to see their families break up. It bothers you when, when, when things happen that just turn them from God. It pains you to see them suffer spiritually. See, something's different in you. So, so what are you going to do? Let's leave today saying, God... You're so awesome for what you've done in here. Help me to live that out for someone in my neighborhood, on my street, at my work, on my team. God, just give me six. Six people can see the same change in them that you've done in me. Wouldn't it be neat if Easter Sunday we see you walking in with a line of people? Hey, Todd, I want you to meet. And you just start introducing folks that you've invested and invited. It would be even cooler if God begins to save those people as He wants to desperately. You say, it can't happen. Oh, I beg to disagree. Last year about this time, one of our ladies in our church prayed for three people. She began to pray every single day. She turned their name in. Our staff prayed. If you recall, we had a time when we turned a lot of names in. Remember called the Wall of Ten Words last, uh, last February? Folks that would understand and experience the freedoms of God. In the last 12 months... That list of three names, two of them have become Christians already. Isn't that awesome? She emailed me recently and said, Todd, two down, one to go. And she's just living Jesus in front of them. And when the time comes, she speaks. And God has done what only He can do. He has saved people because she said, man, God's changed me. Who else can I go to? What about you? Will you live with an upward view that results in an inward change so that we can have an outward mission. That's the way to let God's holiness impact you. We see the mountain. We have compassion for the masses. Just like Jesus who said when He saw the multitudes, He was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. May God grant us a shepherd's heart for people who don't know Him.